0: Podcast one production. Oh, that's a girly one. Big questions. G'day Adam Spencer here. Welcome to another installment of the Big Questions. Today I ask, I think a question that all of us asked at some stage in our lives, especially in our childhood. What's it like? go to space would it be the most dreamt of occupation astronaut is it is it the single thing that practically everyone at some stage in their life dreams for a second about what it would be like and understandably so very few people ever make the journey well a little while ago when he was in sydney i caught up with one of the most famous astronauts of all time he never walked on the moon but in his time on the International Space Station, he sang ground control to Major Tom, did all sorts of experiments from space and became one of the most loved astronaut nerds ever. Commander Chris Hadfield is my guest on today's Big Questions. You might have seen him in the International Space Station. You probably weren't in the International Space Station yourself, but you would have been on Earth <laughs> looking at a computer, seeing him in the International Space Station. He was there. How are you, Commander?
1: But I could see you
0: from there, <laughs> We'll get into that very soon. I will start by saying, Adam." Měnu Adam. Okay, stop there. Uh, that first bit was what uh, my phone told me was Russian for "My name is Adam." Name means "I
1: am called." I am, I am
0: called. called Adam. You lost me after that. That's right. But v rossi. <sighs> you know, I started to speak Russian. Oh, <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: You, yeah, you learn You learned to speak Russian.
1: Yeah, I didn't only begin. Yes, I speak Russian. I, well, I was the pilot of a Russian spaceship. Mm. And, and so the, uh, you, don't, you know, the, the books aren't in English. You, <laughs> you don't fly a Russian spaceship in English and none of the professors speak English and, and the exams and the emergencies, you know, they're all in Russian. So uh, I studied Russian for 20 years, j- just in case someday, hopefully I get a chance to fly a Russian spaceship.
0: Was, it re- was that really the motivation for you learning the language initially?
1: Sure. Uh, I didn't speak well, I you know, I said Niet and Da uh, and vodka and perestroika. I think that's all <laughs> I knew when, when I got hired as an astronaut. Um, but uh the soviet union i I was hired in 92 so the soviet union was coming apart and it looked like nasa was going to cooperate with uh, the russians and so it just made sense so in 93 i started studying russian and in uh 2013 i commanded a spaceship with russian crew members so yeah it, it was really just an investment of skill
0: well this is the fascinating thing i think for anyone who studies your story canadian wants to be in space no canadian space program at the time you have to work very hard four people accepted out of 5,330 hmm. Canadian applicants. Terrible odds. But I, and I remember you reading about your, you and your wife said, look, let's do ours in leather binding and the full thing. Let's yeah. not <laughs> muck around. So let's assume if of those 5,330, some of those applications probably weren't great. Probably. But you could tail off. There must have been hundreds of eminently qualified people who'd really wanted it for a long time. What separates the top four?
1: Um, well, I, of course, I had no idea, right? There, there were no uh, real precedents. We'd never hired astronauts that way before. And previously, we had had some payload specialists fly, sort of like guest passenger scientists on the shuttle. Now we were hiring NASA mission specialists. People are going to have to be able to fly the spaceships. So who knew what they were looking for? I was just guessing. Um, but I think what they were really looking for was uh, an ability to learn, a proven ability to learn complicated things, and a proven ability to make good decisions, and then finally um, a healthy body. Those three things, I, I think, that's what was the initial big filter. And, and the medicals really strict, but an advanced university education and some sort of track record of making good decisions. But I think that whittled it down to about five hundred. Hmm. And then they were looking for, okay, what, what else do you got? You know, what else have you done? And so have, have, have you worked internationally? Do you speak other languages? Do you, uh, have you represented the country? Have you, uh, you know, are you an interesting person? What, what other skills do you bring to the table?
0: And in some ways, had you for years been predicting them, asking those sort of questions and
1: loading yourself up with that skill set? Well, sort of indirectly. I, I mean, I, I kept pursuing things that were interesting to me. You know, I, I didn't become a downhill ski racer because I thought someday that might make me an astronaut. <laughs> but I really enjoyed the combination of speed and control that downhill skiing had. And, and, and then I was a ski instructor. And, and, and I think sort of the, the whole suite of those things put together, the life experience that I'd gathered in pursuit of that dream um, helped me get selected out of the 5,300. Um, but as to exact, you know, it becomes a judgment call at the end because mm. when we got down to the final 20, You know, uh, everybody was trying to look uh, casually magnificent, you know, walking around and, (laughs) and it's, you know, we didn't know how many they were even going to choose when there were the final 20. They they were, we were thinking it might just be two people they were Mm. choosing. So, so. And you were, you were bumping into the other. 20 well,
0: in it, test scenarios, and yeah, interviews and things like
1: they, that. They, uh, when there were 500, we filled up more forms. When there were 120, uh, some of us gathered in certain areas for further interviews. When there were 50, we had to get together for more interviews. But when we were down to 20, we all, all 20 of us for a week gathered in Ottawa and stayed in the same hotel and ran around from coordination tests to medical tests to oh, IQ yeah, yeah. tests. We did a mock press conference. We had this panel interview for two hours where they had no idea what they were going to ask us. And and it was kind of random as to which of those you were doing. And you might've had this full proctosigmoidoscopy where they look up your rear end with, with this snake as far as they can look. And then two hours later, you have to do your panel interview for two hours and look presentable. It was not a pleasant process. And the vibe
0: uh, of that must've been something like an episode of Survivor or The Bachelor
1: or American Idol of you yeah, guys it, looking, except, I've got him covered, except don't know about it, him. Except it was real. Yeah. Yeah, and-, and <laughs> And we were actually qualified people and we were going to be leaving Earth. You know, we, we weren't just contestants on a TV show and, and it wasn't staged. And, and so uh, the, the stakes were extremely high. The people that were selected out of those 20 people were going to be trusted to fly rocket ships on behalf of the planet. And, and that that's the undercurrent that's different. It's not it's not a beauty contest. This is this is uh being in a position where you can be trusted with a responsibility that that is many lives and billions of dollars, you know. So, so we took it all seriously, and and it was extremely competitive. But at the same time, we all drove around in each other's cars, and we went out, and we wanted one of the people had a birthday party. So we 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 hosted a birthday for a guy named Doug, and we hosted a birthday party for Doug, and we bought uh, Julie, one of the other uh, finalists, and I went out and bought a little space shuttle, made him a birthday cake, and we all collectively agreed whichever of us gets selected, the first. Us to fly, we'll take this little space shuttle into space and uh, and give it back to Doug, regardless. So, so there was uh, mm. you know a sense of shared experience, but uh, it was uh, amazing to be through that process, and even more amazing to get a phone call uh, a month later saying we'd we'd like you to be an astronaut.
0: Tell us about the phone call. You you know the day that you'll be getting the phone call whether it's yes or no, it's the yeah, same day. The process
1: had driven me crazy. You know, I, 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 I don't like being on tenterhooks and without having any control of my fate for months on end. And that's yeah. the way it was. And I just, it, it drove, at one point, they'd said, we're absolutely going to call you within three weeks. And three weeks went by, no phone call, plus or minus. And another week went by and finally I was like, <laughs> okay, I give up, I'm just going to call. I called up the number they give me. And I said, so? He said, oh, oh wait, let me check, Hadfield, Hadfield. Hey, congratulations, you're at the next level. I'm like, well, you could have called me. What is this part of the test? But anyway, when when it finally got to the end, uh, it was a Saturday afternoon. They said, uh, we're going to start phoning people at one o'clock on Saturday. And so, you know, I exercised that morning. I went water skiing. I figured kind of blow off some steam. And then was in my, our kids were still little, so they didn't really know or care. But uh, my neighbor came over because he had always wanted to be an astronaut he just wanted to be in on the excitement of it Again, guy named steve and so we're sitting in the kitchen and i'm hoping the phone's going to ring close oh. to one o'clock because yeah. i'm sure they're going to call the people they want first because maybe somebody will say no you know maybe yeah. someone will have had second thoughts or something so they'll go down the list from from who they want and, and then they'll just call everybody else to say sorry and so when the phone rang like a whatever, three minutes after one, I Whoa. thought, oh, I hope this isn't my mom calling. And, and uh, picked it up and it was the people from the space agency asking me if I would like to be an astronaut or not. And yes, I have always have wanted to be an astronaut and great sense of relief. And then of course, you can't tell anybody, has to be a secret, yeah. can't tell anyone. And, uh, and then hang up the phone, And my wife absolutely overjoyed cartwheels in our kitchen, our neighbor just pumping the air. For me, uh, the the absolutely overriding emotion was one of relief. Just of, of, I didn't let everybody down. I didn't let my parents down. I didn't let my wife down. I hadn't been pursuing this thing for nothing. You know, this was, it was, it was, it was maybe if you'd been climbing a a craggy rock face for what seemed like forever and suddenly you get your fingers and you pull up and you can see over the mountain range to Mm. the other side. It, it, the, uh, the view is kind of overwhelmed by the event itself. And I knew now we were over a big threshold in life and headed in a different direction. But the main emotion was one, a great gush of just, Relief.
0: I'm speaking with the commander, Chris Hadfield. I'll ask you about some of those moments of the reality soon. But just on that point of the phone call for a second, whenever I've spoken to athletes uh, about the first moment they received the phone call and told, Mm -hmm. you're in the Australian team. Right. Or a couple of scientists who've received the phone call from Stockholm and been told, congratulations, the Nobel Committee have decided. The thought that runs through their mind for a split second, especially with the athletes, is, I thought it was one of the boys in the club just <laughs> g
1: me up.
0: Was there a shred of you that conceived for a second it was a mate
1: no. having a laugh? No, the, uh, it, was, it was too formalized. <laughs> and I recognized the voice and it was a certain time of day. So, no, I, I knew for sure. Uh, right. I knew for sure it, it was for real. The uh, funny part was we weren't allowed to call anybody, but I said, can I call my parents? And yes, so I called my mom and told her. And then I thought I'd, I'd best call my grandpa. Uh, and uh, and i told my mom you can't tell anybody i called my grandpa and by the time he picked up he said hey how are you i said hi it's chris hey i've been selected he said yeah i know your mom just called <laughs> I said, mom it was supposed to be a secret i called her back and she said oh well i thought i could tell family but anyway because <laughs> when, when when you say that mix of the the
0: program such a you know a tremendous thrill, such an amazing thing to do, but at the same time that sense of responsibility and, and uh, excuse the pun, the gravitas of it all. But I remember you are telling a story that when you're walking past the photographers boarding the shuttle and that eruption of light, you're both thinking, wow, this is it, but there's a very serious underthought as to why they're taking those photos, isn't there?
1: Yeah, there, there's there's all the trappings going on, but as an astronaut, you're very much aware when you take a formal photograph or when they take your crew photograph, or even more so, as you say, when you walk out of the operations and checkout building and all those flashes go off and they have those. They even tell us which hand to wave with so you don't block your face as you're doing that carefully choreographed waving. They're taking those pictures so that when you die, they have pictures to show. Mm. And, and that's hap- with Challenger, of course. Uh, the imagery of those faces and their crew photo is, is forever kind of... Uh, Representative of of not only what they did and who they were but how they died and and so you know there's a gallows humor humor to it all mm. as well it's like, okay, fine, I might die today, but you know so might the photographer he 's got to drive home, and what the heck you know this this is a magnificent human endeavor, and none of us last forever and uh and this isn't all just uh paparazzi this is uh This is recording a significant event where there is a definite risk involved. And it's really up to us to not let that risk prevail, to actually survive and win
0: the day. So do you mind if I ask you a couple of questions about Columbia 2003? Ask whatever you like. Because I I saw an interview where you spoke about the footage that was available after the craft had taken off. And clearly something had gone wrong Mm -hmm. between then and the the horrible re-entry and disaster there was, there was a, a clip of video that you watched repeatedly. The,
1: the crew of Columbia, uh, I knew them all, of course. It's a very small cadre of people that are in the astronaut corps. The commander of the crew, Rick Husband, he and I went to test pilot school together. He, we sang, we got drunk together. We're you know, all kids are the same age. And uh, he was a singing waiter on his way through uh, university. That's how he paid his way through. Uh, I knew Rick really well. And I was in Russia when they launched. I was NASA's director of operations in Russia. And... Uh, it was in 03, January of 03. And I was sitting up in my little Russian apartment in uh Dua, my little, um, little apartment building I was living in there. And I watched that one of those little video clips that you could slow down frame by frame. And it showed the, uh, the sort of the nose of the shuttle, the big external orange gas tank and the, and the wing of the space shuttle. And it showed this small piece of stuff flipping through the air and crashing into the wing of Columbia. And, and then it was on auto repeat. And so I watched that over and over and over again, trying to get a sense of uh, how, how bad that might have been. Or is it just, yeah, it, you know, the spaceship's tough. It can take a little bit of foam. And watched it over and over and over again with a, with a sense of unease. You know, I'm an engineer and a, and a fighter pilot and a test pilot, and I'd flown in space twice. And part of me was saying, well, that's never happened before. Part of me is saying, yeah, but everybody else is looking at it. And the engineers that, you know, design that part, uh, they've looked at it. And, and, you know, I'm not smarter than all of the uh, structural and thermal engineers at NASA. But part of me was saying, that's not right. That, that, you know, we should really have a good look where that hit and make sure we didn't do any damage. But just like pretty much everybody else in the organization, I took other people's word for it. I, I looked at it and I thought, well, leading edge is tough. And it wasn't going all that fast and it's just foam. And I'm just gonna let other people decide. And of course, when Columbia came back into the atmosphere, the reality was it had a hole in the wing, the hole, a hole the size of a stop sign in the wing at the leading edge of the wing. And when it comes into the atmosphere, we use friction from the air to slow down. So it became like a blowtorch. This is if someone took a, a, a foot across blowtorch and stood in front of a hole in the wing and just slowly melted everything in the wing. And, uh, and, of course, up 150,000 feet, it melted and did enough damage, the wing came apart, and um, the vehicle tumbled and uh, broke into pieces and killed the crew just through violence. And all of it fell to earth, including the crew. And I could have done differently, of course. You always look back in retrospect when something bad happens. I, I I was a respected member of the astronaut corps, a senior member of the astronaut corps. I could have been the person that stood up and said, you're going to have to fire me before I stop screaming at the top of my lungs that we need to look at that wing. We need to send those crew outside on a spacewalk. Hmm. That, that could have been the only way we could have looked because the part of the wing that was damaged was hidden, hidden by, by one of the radiator doors and they didn't have a robot arm on that flight because it was a laboratory flight before the space station. So the only way to look... Was, uh, they tried to look using you know spy telescopes and things, but it's carbon-carbon. It's, it's black on black. It's like looking for a black hole inside a black cave. You, they, they just never saw anything conclusive. So we crossed our fingers instead of doing everything we could. And as a result, we killed the crew. And I've always felt culpable. Uh, I mean, I wasn't the only guy guilty, but I, I surely could have done different. So I came back to Houston right after that and took over in robotics and got very actively involved in, um, figuring out what we needed to do in order to be able to safely fly spaceships again. Mm -hmm. Number one, stop losing pieces of foam. Number two, be able to detect damage when it occurs. And number three, be able to fix damage if it occurred and robotics were two out of three Mm -hmm. to be able to detect it and be able to fix it. We needed robotics. So it was a, uh, it was very much part of my responsibility to help us get back to flight, along with a huge team of yeah. people, of course. And, uh, and we learned from it and we make better spaceships now as a result.
0: Some of that story resonates with the, the amazing work that Richard Feynman did post-Challenger. And he was part of the, the, the team asking what went wrong and why. And there were a few times when he stood up and just asked nerdy physics questions and process questions that led to a new age of, of, of better rigour.
1: We learned a huge amount from both of the shuttle accidents. We learned a lot from the near misses we had. We had near misses on almost every flight. You know, it, it's a hard thing to do to fly yeah. to space. And as a test pilot, I'd had friends die all the time. I mean, test pilots are expected to die in their job. Uh, it doesn't make national headlines when a test pilot dies because it's a dangerous job. But the phrase expected to die, that's an, that's an amazing
0: thing to say. Well, it's, it's true. It's I mean, reality. We, ex- we
1: expect soldiers to die. We expect firemen to die. We expect policemen to die. You know, uh, it's just part of the job description. And test pilots—they're—they're uh, uh, they're extremely technically trained, competent people, but—but but they die on a regular basis. Mm. But uh, every single time one of them dies, of course, we try and wring every single thing we can out of what we learned from that. And and as most of the procedures when you fly an airplane, as we say, are written in blood because uh, that's how we learned what works and what doesn't, and uh, and spaceflight is no different. I'm Adam
0: Spencer. I'll be back with some more big questions soon.
1: Can I ask you a question on a lighter
0: note? One of our listeners sent a Twitter question. A lighter note than that? Really? Okay. <laughs> Captain Hart asks, uh, Commander Chris Hatfield, how does shaving work in space? You maintain such a perfect moustache.
1: Um, there's an option of using a, an electric razor or you can use just a standard a safety razor and uh, I don't like electric razors because it feels like it's just hacking my face off. So about every two or three days I'd shave and I just put a little bit of, uh, it's actually called Astro Gel. We have Astro Gel. Shaving cream oh. Just put a tiny little bit on my dry face just to lubricate the beard a little bit and then, um, and shave and you just wipe the, uh, the safety razor onto a, a, a cloth. And then by the end, uh, you can sort of rinse out, maybe use the razor three or four times, but you, you can't get it rinsed out like you can on earth and then clean your face off. And then for the mustache, uh, I just used uh, scissors and then to keep the whiskers from floating yeah. everywhere in the spaceship, I just held a little vacuum cleaner right beside me. And so every whisker went <laughs> down the vacuum cleaner and and it worked out fine. I just probably should do that on Earth, too. It would irritate my wife less
0: because <laughs> with the Astro Jill. Gel- I mean, every every nerdy kid has grown up and been given a space pen. You know, the ones that you can write upside down right, underwater, right, yeah. like they use on the space shuttle. Is Astro Gel available? I would. There's no amount of money I would not pay for a tube of Astro Gel. Uh,
1: it NASA puts it in a, a non-commercial uh, tube, and it just says Astro Gel on it. So, and it's it's sort of blue. I, I don't know. They probably you know buy it from someone else, and rewrap it. I, I don't know, but it works fine. It, it, if when you're in space, uh, don't leave Earth
0: without it. Because this morning we we happened to be staying in the same hotel, and I bumped into you this morning and I saw you, you were doing uh, the New York Times crossword. Yep. And for people not familiar with the New York Times crossword, famous crossword, it's a, it's a straight clue, not cryptic, but right. often quite tough and follows
1: beautiful, peculiar themes. It's yeah. a bit of an institution in it the is, States, isn't it? It is, yeah. And, and uh, we, my wife and I do that uh, on a regular basis. We were, were uh, educated differently. We came from different backgrounds, Uh we both think of ourselves as sort of clever, but we're clever in very different ways. Okay. And so between the two of us, we do far, far better at a crossword than either of us do independently, which there's probably a moral there. When you're up in space, do you have time to uh, fulfill any
0: hobbies, reading, crossword, anything, or is every, every second of every day clinically accounted for because it is such a rarity and, and you know, there's so much to be done up there?
1: Uh, There are 15 nations built the International Space Station. Each of them uh, has a vested interest in what's going on. So each of them has a piece of my time. And they all work through mission control. And there's a mission control in Houston, one in Montreal, one in Germany, one in Japan, and one in Moscow. And they all tell us what to do. And the way they tell us is this big electronic schedule that's on the computer screen with a big red line moving across it. And your, your name is there and your time is dictated to five minute increments for the whole six months. there, And nowhere does it say, go have fun and look out the window. Never. It always says next, 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 next. So the only time that you'll uh, get free is if you can get ahead of the red line. So you're always working or, or where it says sleep. If you just, Don't sleep for a while. And uh, I always tried to get ahead of the red line, of course, but then I would also uh, skip sleep. Uh, I wouldn't sleep the whole period because that's the time to do all the things you want to do. Look out the window, take Mm -hmm. pictures, uh, write about it, play some music, uh, talk to each other, relax. I would never do anything just recreational. I thought, you know, watch a movie. (laughs) come all the way to space and watch a movie? No way. You know, I would rather do that while I'm on earth. Uh, I tried to use every second that I had available up there um, to be productive, to try and do something different, to, to take advantage of the, of the absolute uh, rarity of the human experience of being there. So those educational
0: videos and the interactive sessions you had with school kids, I I loved the, the David Bowie cover, but for me, the, the, Water in space and the ringing out the towel was the one that you show to people and it blows their minds.
1: Yeah, and like 15 million people have watched just uh, that that simple little visual experiment. We had a national competition in Canada through the Canadian Space Agency and they said, hey, high school students suggest a, a simple science experiment for Chris to do on the spaceship. And they, they whittled through and they got down to three final ones and they sent me, uh, from the space agents, sent me a description and said, which one do you think would be the one you want to do? And I chose that one because I thought it'll be good in visual oh, and, yeah. and it won't do what people expect. Mm. And uh, and then I, I just, with the two young ladies that had come up with the experiment, they were on the other end of the uh, communication. And, uh, and so I demonstrated it for them. And then immediately the Canadian space agency took that video, edited it down to a little two minute thing mm. and... And we just let people look. And the beauty of it is it inspires imagination. Mm. When something unexpected happens, mm. when you, you, you think you know what's going to happen, but then you realize because of a difference of place, because of a slight change due to weightlessness, suddenly something that you know really, really well doesn't happen. And, and, and so it, it intrigued people and it makes you suddenly you start thinking, well, what else would be different? What would happen to your sweat? When you sweat up there, or could you burp on a space station yeah. or what would, uh, what would layered jello do? Or could you make tiramisu up there or whatever, you know, people mm. are going to start thinking, huh, And that huh? That visually stimulating people to expand uh, the limits of their imagination to me is is what it's all about. What I loved about it is it's the
0: sort of experiment a five-year-old can watch, could come back and watch when they're 10 and again when they're 17 and and get a deeper appreciation. We had another uh, Twitter question from Mark. Does your guitar sound different in microgravity? So we know what we heard back on Earth, but if I'd been floating around alongside you, what would I have heard?
1: Uh, So I've thought about this. I played guitar pretty much every day up there, and I play most days on Earth. Uh, The strings, of course, on Earth are subject to gravity, but there's almost no gravity effect because the strings are so taut. Mm. The real friction, of what really slows them down, of course, is pushing the air back and forth as they vibrate, and, and very little of that is gravity. So that doesn't change. The resonating box of the guitar still hums with the vibration of the strings, so that's about the same So really, the difference is holding the guitar Uh, on on Earth. You can suspend the guitar on a strap or you can rest it gently on your knee when you're in orbit. Of course, the the guitar is floating weightless. So I could strum a chord and let the guitar go and it could just resonate forever. It wouldn't be damped by my knee or or held against my belly. So it might resonate longer on a given chord. But the real problem with guitar playing is, is not the sound but trying to control the guitar when mm. there's nothing to stabilize it. its I tell guitar players everywhere, if you want to know what it's like, uh, get your guitar, stand on your head and play. Mm. And Because the guitar won't stay where it's supposed to. And when you try and go up and down the fretboard with your left hand, everything's going to be messed up because the gravity vector's in the ro- opposite direction. And so you know exactly what it feels like to go up to the fifth fret, the seventh fret. But as soon as you get upside down, your arm's going to be all over the place because because the muscle memory cues are all different. And so, uh, if if you can stand on your head and play guitar, you get a little appreciation for what it's like to play guitar and waitlist. So the masterpiece we heard, was that a one-take wonder, two takes, 20 takes? Um, I, I recorded a lot of music on the spaceship. I, I wrote a whole suite of music yeah. and, and recorded an album of original music. Uh, and I did all of the music the same way. I would practice it, just get the hang of it, and then had a little microphone hooked up, went through to an iPad. On the iPad, I had GarageBand with a click track. And then I, I would lay down a guitar track and then another guitar track and another guitar track because I'm thinking I'm playing, you know, kind of sloppily because of the weightlessness. But hopefully between these three tracks, uh, there's enough clean playing in there. And then I would uh, put vocals on top of that using that same microphone. But then uh, doing and I normally did two or three vocal tracks. And I tried Mm -hmm. to squeeze one song out every couple of weeks if I could just find the time where I wasn't too tired or there weren't too many things going on. And uh, Space Oddity was the same way. I I did that uh, fairly early on and uh and had the vocal track and then later on went back and of course one saturday afternoon and filmed the uh, the video floating around to my own voice and then uh and then my son edited all that stuff together and and uh, and it's amazing to see how uh how provocative and and um different the 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 end result was mm-hmm. and how so many people it, with you, look at all the reviews around the world, rebroadcast, It's hundreds of millions mm. of people have seen that as a result. So, pretty, pretty amazing result. Car, oh.
0: We're talking with Commander Chris Hatfield on the Sleek Geeks podcast. Um, my younger daughter wants to be a chef, dancer, singer, astronaut. Perfect combination. You need you need them on the space station. I think so. That would be good when she's in a lift. And the lift uh, is going up she's or just like stopping. I am. <laughs> she yeah. she she grabs the bars on the side of the lift and yeah. pushes up. Yeah, just as the lift's coming to a halt or just as it's up or down, and she thinks she's getting a small glimpse of weightlessness into weightlessness. Is it even a one percent approximation of what it's
1: like to fly? Is it <laughs> when you uh, go out to get into a rocket ship? you go up about 20 stories on an elevator and you're all standing there in your big protective clothing, your pressure suit, all the astronauts are standing there and the elevator's taking us and all of us, when the elevator starts to throw start, down, we all jump just like your daughter does. <laughs> so we get that little funny feeling in the small of our stomach uh, just because it's fun. and you get a little taste of, of what weightlessness will be like, but it's, it's the difference between maybe um, diving into a swimming pool and uh, swimming the Atlantic. You, you, it's both water around your body, but it's an entirely different experience. One's just an instantaneous transient impact of change. One is a, a permanent, uh, different place to be. And, uh, and actually, the, uh, they're both fun, but uh, being weightless, your, your chef, dancer, singer, astronaut daughter would... Uh, would love it and her cake wouldn't fall. And so
0: when Stephen asks, Steve Corby asks, I'd love to know if Chris thinks he might have suffered any long term health issues, radiation exposure, long term zero gravity, etc. Do you have any sense as to whether there has been any long term impact on you? Is it the sort of thing you wouldn't so, know for many years? yet? He, or- NASA
1: wants to know also, of course, all the space agencies do. Maybe, maybe I'll live longer. You know, maybe all the astronauts will live to be 110. Who knows? Mm. Uh, And so we have extremely uh, detailed medical investigations for the rest of our lives. All of the astronauts, everybody who's flown in space, especially those of us who've been up there for a long time. And uh, what we're starting to see so far, of course, I got more radiation. While I was up there because you don't have the atmosphere as a filter it, it, the people that live in Denver or in the, the the Andes up at high altitude, they get more radiation than the people who live in Sydney just because they don't get the protection of the air above them uh, but it's it's no more radiation than someone who works in the uh, in the nuclear industry hmm. we 're not allowed to break the American industrial rules that's OSHA occupational safety and health and so maybe. I have a slightly higher chance of getting cancer, but it's no more than most workers uh, across uh, the world. Um, Some astronauts have come back with a permanent degradation of vision, about 20%, and we don't know why. uh, We think it might be some... congenital thing they're born with something that when you're up in weightlessness for a long time it causes a permanent shift in the shape of your eyeball it's maybe in the in the structure of the eyeball Mm -hmm. or how the pressure on the optic nerve is contained We, we don't understand it yet it may be because we have a high salt diet up there and it changes the constituency of the fluids that are behind the eye we don't know but uh it may be one of the things that we we select astronauts out for now if we recognize what the problem is but beyond that We're not sure. Maybe we have a higher chance of cataracts later, Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, I don't know of any uh, permanent degradation. I lost a lot of skeleton while I was up there, but it, it grew back. Uh, our osteoporosis reverses. I lost 8% across my hips, my upper femur and my hip cradle, especially the- uh, 8% of the bone? Well, the bone, the outer bone is that hard calcified bone. And then your inner bone is, uh, is sort of softer and uh, the trabecular bone. And I lost both, some of both. The average was about 8% across the two. And now the bone that grew back is more of the outer calcified bone, less of the trabecular. So it's sort of like old man bones. They're mm. a little more brittle. But they're the same average density as when I launched, so it, it's not without some small change. But but heck, I was going to get older anyway, and I would much rather have flown in space and have slightly aged hips yeah. than, uh, than not to have flown in space. You'll do at all. six months in space for a bit of old man bone. Uh, that's exactly right. Yes. Yeah. Who wouldn't?
0: <laughs> Two final questions. You, you talk about the astronaut, the, the, the space traveling community. Is there a pecking order? People who walked on the moon, top <laughs> down, down, down. Um. Is, is, there a, is there like any any anyone who meets any astronaut would say, "I met an astronaut today." My God! But are there people you've met within the SPOs program where you've gone, "Wow"? That was
1: that guy. Well, uh, you sort of think, well, an astronaut's an astronaut, but of course that's not true. You know, there are some that I mean, there was one guy who uh, was a a Ph.D. and a medical doctor and he was on the national soccer team and he was a test pilot. I mean, (laughs) how, how competent can a human being be? Just settle um, down, might yeah, Leave I something mean, for someone else. And he was a great guy, you know, just wonderful company. And, and then there's some people that are super specialized in one area, but, you know, maybe they're not great at, at something mm-hmm. else. We, we have a, a spectrum within a group of very competent human beings. Um, we all have, of course, uh, great respect for each other, great respect for the people that have done the really hard things or taken the biggest risks. Only 12 human beings have walked on the moon. They, you know, they win always. Mm-hmm. It, but, but... Within the astronaut corps, there's no competition. We, we internally, uh, you know, makes me laugh. I'm going, well, I only flew in space three times. And Jerry Ross, he flew seven times in space. And I'm like, really? You know, get a, <laughs> get over yourself. You know, you've orbited the world. And, um, and so... No, there, there's, there's a professional society of astronauts. It's called the Association of Space Explorers. And, um, and I was president of it for several years. Oh. And it is still such a select and, and uh, exclusive group of people that, uh, that we, we all recognize that there were pluses and minuses to everything we did, and we treat each other with respect. One,
0: one final question, Chris, from Samuel Watson. Astronaut Hadfield, my question is, when will you stop stealing my girlfriend's heart?
1: <laughs> uh, uh, well, I am confident that uh, as a girlfriend worth having, she has lots of heart to go around. And the fact that that she is interested in space flight probably just makes her a more interesting companion for you for the rest of your life.
0: <laughs> but the world, the world of you now having having returned, Chris Hadfield now, you know, internet celebrity post space station, is that an interesting thing for you to take on in addition to the role of professional
1: scientist engineer? Well, it, it really didn't change for me at all uh, from uh, the day that I was selected. I mean, they made a documentary about us during the selection process and they were chasing us around. To me, it's an interesting human adventure and, and, and rare. And, and I shouldn't, feel that I need to keep it to myself or something this this is and I wasn't there at my own expense I was there at the expense of Canadian taxpayers and world taxpayers I'm I'm there as a vanguard on behalf literally of millions of people so how selfish would it be to not try and share it to the best of my ability and so through my whole 21 years in the astronaut corps i um I did my absolute best. I spoke more more weekends that I was home. I, I went to schools and spoke and all across Canada and around the world and from my space flights and and what I'm doing now is just a continuation of that. I I use Skype to tie into schools Mm. every week during the school year to, to have a a half hour Q and a, we call it on the lunch pad, just kind of a cute thing. (laughs) And I I started that. And, and I, I work at university, I teach at university and and write books about it. To me, um, I have been given an incredible gift of of something that is still very rare in Mm. the human experience. and, Mm it it's for the good it's it's a positive thing there's all sorts of you know uh, base behavior going on all the time but there are some magnificent things happening in the world and exploring the rest of the universe in person is one of them Mm. and so people should at least at least know about it and 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 decide you know what that means amongst the fabric of society and as one of the lucky guys who's gotten to do it uh, i think it's an important part of my responsibility to uh and that work you've done since you've returned to
0: Earth and the millions of young people you have inspired and will continue to inspire is, you know, I, I believe, yeah, as important as the incredible work you did when you are up there. And an absolute pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for your time, Commander
1: Chris Hadfield. Thanks Adam, very much. It was nice to talk with you.
0: This episode of The Big Questions, as always, was produced and edited by Alex Mitchell in the Podcast One Studios executive producer Jamie Show, series producer Caroline Pegram and the theme music provided by the good people at Uncanny Valley. If you want to hear more Big Questions answered, go to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app or look us up on iTunes. I'm Adam Spencer. I'll be back with some more Big Questions soon.
1: Big Questions.